It's official. Spring has sprung as we kick off another exciting episode of Everything Zen, where we discuss everything in the Zenoscope universe from conspiracy and hell child to possessive, rise of the jinn, the mainstream, and so much more. This is Zenoscope. I'm your host, Mark Sells, and we're happy to have you along with us for our March edition of Everything Zen. We're running a little late this month, so I'm going to blame Daylight Savings Time. But in actuality, we have a jam-packed show for you today that I'm really excited about and hope will be well worth the wait. March, of course, is well known for the start of spring, celebrating St. Patrick's Day and, oh yes, March Madness. The greatest month for basketball fans as the NCAA tournament runs through March and into early April. And it's probably the main reason why March is also one of the least productive months for workers during the year. Everyone is excitedly eyeing their picks, just waiting for the Cinderella story or big upset to ruin their entire bracket. As the saying goes, March comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb. After a long, cold winter, March brings those in the Northern Hemisphere the promise of longer and warmer days. And it's also the time of year when animals start to awaken from hibernation. So it's probably best to stay away from that bear that's just now waking up, because he or she will most likely be very, very hangry. Monopoly, not to be confused with Xenopoly, was invented in March 1933 by Parker Brothers. The Girl Scouts were founded by Juliet Gordon Lowe in March of 1912, and Coca-Cola was invented by John Pemberton in March of 1886. Originally patented for medicinal purposes, yet ironically, it has since become the bane of dentists all around the world for its ability as a soft drink to erode tooth enamel. Lastly, in what may come as a bit of a shocker, did you know that St. Patrick wasn't actually Irish? In fact, he was born to Roman parents in Scotland or Wales in the late 4th century, but made his mark by introducing Christianity to Ireland in the year 432. Also, if you get pinched on St. Patrick's Day for not wearing green, remember that St. Patrick himself would have gotten pinched back in the day because his official color was sky blue. That's right, St. Patrick's blue. Green wouldn't become associated with the holiday until it was linked to the Irish independence movement in the late 18th century. Coming up on this podcast, we'll be joined by Noah Mitchell, who has some podcast Word of the Month prizes for you, all focused on Unbound. Amber will be stopping by to share her thoughts on the Unbound graphic novel, and we'll be doling out some Buffy the Vampire Slayer fun facts. We'll be joined by co-founder and creator of Unbound, Ralph Tedesco, as well as the co-author of Girl on Fire, Andrew Weiner. And later, we'll go cross-continental to check in with Harriet Pillbeam, the rising music star known as Hatchie. We've got a full court press ready to go, so grab your favorite snacks and enjoy the show. The tip-off to this edition of Everything Zen starts right now. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember... All I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. That's Morpheus, played by the great Lawrence Fishburne, giving Keanu Reeves Neo the ultimate choice between a machine-generated dream world and the harsh reality of the real world in the 1999 science fiction classic, The Matrix. At the core of a film like The Matrix is the concept of virtual reality, a simulated experience that can be similar or different to that of the real world, where users put on a headset and enter an artificial world where they can move around and interact with other users, play games, go shopping, attend sporting events and concerts, simulate work environments, and participate in all kinds of unique experiences. 
But virtual reality isn't all fun and games. In fact, it has many practical applications as well, simulating environments for health, safety, education, and training purposes. Everything from flight simulators and driver education to surgery and physical rehabilitation for the treatment of Parkinson's disease, autism, anxiety disorders, and phobias. Virtual reality has been explored in film and television series for as long as I can remember, going back to 1992's The Lawnmower Man, to David Cronenberg's Existence, Tron, Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall, Blade Runner, even Amazon Prime has joined in the fun with an original series called Upload. The list is endless. And after many, many years as sort of a niche upstart technology, virtual reality is finally turning into big business. With Facebook, now Meta, transforming their entire business model into the new frontier. Virtual reality is becoming more affordable and accessible. In the near future, will Ernest Klein's vision in Ready Player One and The Oasis come true? Where we all escape the harshness of the real world and the constraints of a multi-conglomerate evil empire like IOI by putting on an Oculus or HTC Vive headset? Maybe. In October 2019, Zenoscope took the red pill with an original story by Ralph Tedesco. Unbound issue number one introduces an alternate world called the Ether, where a werewolf hunter is involved in an undercover mob investigation whose leader is a lichen named Cain. The werewolf hunter is actually an avatar of a college student named Lucas, and the further the investigation goes, the crazier things get. Lucas discovers that other players alongside him in the Ether are dying, not just their avatars, but in real life. They don't wake up. And a mysterious masked killer emerges as the culprit, known only as X. Lucas and rival players must team up to stop the killer at large. There are so many influences and twists and turns at work here, and one of the main highlights of Unbound is the striking visuals page to page. It's sleek and sophisticated with that cyber flair. Unbound completed its five-issue run in 2020 and just last month was made available on Zenoscope.com as a complete graphic novel. Zenoscope co-founder Ralph Tedesco will be here to talk about all of those virtual reality connections for the series and if there will be more Unbound and more of the ether to explore in the future. But before we bring Ralph in, let's check in with Noah to find out what prizes are available if you enter our March podcast Word of the Month contest. Oh, hi. I didn't see you there. I'm just collecting bounties and fighting off baddies in this digital dystopia. But when I'm not busy kicking butt and taking names, I spend a lot of my time reading. And I gotta tell you, I've really been enjoying this new series from Zenoscope, Unbound. It's an action-packed sci-fi adventure filled with twists and turns. And that's why I'm such a big fan of the prizes for Zenoscope's Word of the Month contest. To enter, all you have to do is listen for this sound. When you hear it, we'll reveal this month's secret word or phrase. Send us a message at info at zenoscope.com with your name, email address, and the secret word or phrase you'll automatically be entered into our raffle. One lucky first prize winner will receive a rare holographic metal cover edition of Unbound Issue 1, along with the Unbound graphic novel. Two second place winners will also receive the Unbound graphic novel, in addition to a set of rare LE50 Don McTeague cyberpunk prints. A handful of runner-ups will also be selected to receive discount codes that can be used on our web store. Well, I best be on my way. A lot of heads to tag and bodies to bag. Good luck, everybody. Back to you, Mark. Thanks, Noah. Our first guest this month is making a back-to-back -back visit to Everything Zen. Why? Because the ever-talented Ralph Tedesco, Zenoscope's co-founder and creative, developed and wrote Unbound, our March Story Spotlight. Ralph joins us now to talk about Unbound and virtual reality, video games, influences from Blade Runner to The Matrix, and technology gone bad. 
something all of us Terminator fans call Judgment Day. Today we're focused on Unbound and joined by Unbound's creator and writer, Ralph Tedesco. Ralph, welcome back to Everything Zen. Thanks for having me again. It's a little uh, deja vu. It's been a while. It has. I'm feeling obligated to start with this because everyone's seen Blade Runner, Total Recall, The Fifth Element, The Matrix. Where did the idea for Unbound come from and what makes it different from those mentioned? First of all, that would be a great company to be in. Uh, You know, the original idea of Unbound was actually not, and I don't want to spoil it too much, if you haven't read it, um, there is a, like you said, more of a matrix, matrixy vibe. There's a Ready Player One vibe to it. Yep. I guess the best way to explain it was initially a sort of seven, seven meets um, Terminator. Hmm. And, and it was my initial sort of concept behind it. And then it evolved into sort of the gaming world that that wasn't in the original outline for the story. And it evolved into kind of taking place in this gaming world and this gaming community. And then I kind of started seeing the parallels as I kind of came up with the storyline, like, oh, this has a lot of Matrix in it. It has a lot of Ready Player One in it. It has some elements of seven still because there is at the end of the day, there's a murder, there's a murderer on the loose and and there's a, there is a, an element of of them trying to figure out who, who this killer is and how to stop him. But yeah, I I was definitely inspired by a lot of those uh, same sort of films you just mentioned. Unbound cyber world is called the ether. Uh, did you spend a lot of time personally playing with virtual reality before writing the series? Do you own an yeah. Oculus and spend time <laughs> in Horizon? No, I have. I mean, the the I think that I've played a lot of um, uh, role play RPG like video games in the past. I wouldn't say a lot, but I've played. In, in, you know, growing up, I, I played some RPGs. Um, I love like the new, like Red Dead Redemption 2, excellent game. Like I I don't have time for video games as much as I used to probably. Um, so did you have a favorite video game as a kid growing up? Super Mario was probably the big one. You know, that was the sweet spot of when like gaming was like, I was a kid playing, you know, Mm. getting into gaming, you know, Nintendo kid. Yeah for sure. Without giving away spoilers, uh, what are the main themes of Unbound and what do you hope readers take away from the series? You know, I wanted to get into the way we, we do with social media and create these sort of avatars for ourselves and catfishing. And sometimes, yeah. And sometimes we don't necessarily, you know, we don't want people to see our real selves for whatever reason, or we're scared to let people see our real selves for whatever reason. And, and this was sort of meant to, sh- to be able to like break down a little bit of that, like to kind of get delve into that a little bit more. And, 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 it, and it was done in ready player one to an extent uh, as well, I think. And with the, they did a really good job with that. And this was a, di- this was a different take. And this was a little bit more also about like creating creating real friendships and, 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 and connecting with people um, and allow like a kid who's, who's constantly like wrapped up in his video games and, and, and not really living in the real world and allowing himself to kind of branch out into to finding, you know, real friends and real people to care about. And I guess that's, that was part of the theme behind that. At the heart of Unbound is a... Uh, mysterious villain named X. How did you come up with X's look and what makes him unique? Yeah, I was very, I wanted to do, you need it. We needed, I needed, I wanted like a mask. I knew I wanted a mask and I was just trying to think of what, what a creepy in this world, this sort of steampunk 
cyber steampunk mixed world that I created. That's the world we live in. It's not a steampunk world. It's not a cyberpunk world, but there's sort of an amalgamation of both. Um, and like, what would be a cool sort of like look for that kind of world? So going to like, looking at those old school like gas masks that uh, from like, I don't know, probably like World War One, maybe even like those like creepy looking and then like making a design from based off of those, but then adding sort of a futuristic twist to it. So I had I sent over a ton of references to our art team and got back like a bunch of, we went back and forth with the artist who did the designs and then and, um, got a kind of idea of, oh, that's, that's what we're landing on. I like this concept of this mask. I'm keeping it very mysterious because we weren't going to reveal too much about X because you really, that's the whole crux of what the story is. Like who's X, what's he doing, what's he want? Oliver Borges did the interior artwork, but the standout for me was, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, but Leonardo Paciorelli on oh, colors. Paciorelli. Yeah. Uh, there's this beautiful, like, 80s, 90s pastel thing going on. Uh, yeah. In terms of look and feel, how much direction did you provide the artist? You know, I, in the script itself, I tried to be very specific uh, as, as more so than I am in some of my other scripts, I tried to give a lot of direction for the look and feel of these, this world. And with, and I sent over a ton of like references that I found, um, hoping that these guys would, cause sometimes you don't Matt, like it just doesn't translate. Like you can send over references and an artist just isn't getting what you want. And I'll be a hundred percent honest. This was like nailed from the beginning. Like Oliver got it right away. And he added so much to what I was trying to portray. Like I saw the pages. I was like, my God, he nailed it. Like he knows what I want. And he took it to another level because I have no artistic talent whatsoever. So when an artist can like take from your mind, what you're seeing in your mind and like making that come, come to life, that's a really cool, feeling as a writer because in your mind when you're doing this you, you have a look in your head and you're like okay I see it in my I picture it this way and then they they take that and they do their artwork and then you go okay that's what it looks like now this is what our world is now like now they've taken control and then you have to then you're almost like giving direction based on like and I was writing this as artwork was coming in so he would be on issue one and I'd be writing issue like three or four so mm -hmm. so then i would like think about the way he was doing his artwork and then write to tailor toward that same thing with the color the color they were a great team because the coloring wasn't really my i didn't give a lot of coloring notes initially i just knew like okay here's here's some of the references i'm going to send and the coloring and i'm seeing and for certain parts of the city or the world there's different like set segments of these of this world like that had different different kind of themes to them so each each part of the city should look a little bit different than another part of this party's a little bit more gritty like you said this part's a little bit more 90s and purpley and pinkish and like that was something that, that leo added to to the book that i probably wouldn't have been helpful <laughs> helpful on because that's not my that's not my strong point. What does the future hold for the ether and will we see more unbound in the future? Well, I think we will. <laughs> I left the ending open. So the story is wrapped up in some ways and then it's left open. And, and we, so the, you have your ending, but you also have like sort of this, this epilogue of like, what's next? What are we alluding to here? What's the, What's going on? So yeah, I mean, I my my idea was always, and our idea, when we were kind of cracking the story together in the writers' room. Joe, myself, and Dave, we kind of had this story conference with, and where I pitched this initial original storyline, and then they added sort of some ideas, and and there is a sequel that it's set up to follow. So so there there is 
and I, there is an idea out there and a loose concept for the sequel and where we would go with it, but I just don't know when it'll come out yet. I'm hoping next year. I'm hoping 2023. Um, it probably won't be this year because I'm wrapping up the Courier this year and then um, and All Guts No Glory. And then, uh, yeah, so maybe 2023 we'll see finally see the sequel to Unbound. Well, that's it. Um, game over, man. So we'll spare you another rapid fire, although you did pretty well last time. Thank you. As always, thanks, Ralph, for joining us on Everything Zen. Thank you, Mark. Hey. Oh, hey. You, you the guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My friend, my friend told me about you. Um, I need some help. You know of somebody that could maybe uh, help me out with my problem? That Cheshire plushie that I keep seeing in the streams, yeah, it's been on the run for ages, and I'm trying to get it for the fans. There's only one, and they've been asking forever. I need someone good to track him down. Like, so good? No, you get me. A bounty hunter. You know of anybody? Oh, keep it on the down low, but some guy named Lucas? Interesting. Tell me more. Unbound, written by our own co-founder, Ralph Tedesco, who was interviewed about this story on today's podcast. The book features covers by Leandro Cola Pietro, Igor Venerino, Keith Garvey, Derlis Santa Cruz, Riviero, Josh Burns, and many others. The synopsis of the story is... In an alternate world called the Ether, a werewolf hunter named Lucas tracks down a mob out it, whose leader is a lichen named Cain. After Lucas teams with a monster hunting newbie named Marna, the duo is able to locate their target, but an unexpected turn of events reveals that nothing is quite what it seems. This collects issues unbound number one through five. I don't want to give away too much about this because, as you can tell, the synopsis is very ominous. However, the beginning has quite a twist. And when you get deep down into it, it has some very, very cool Ready Player One vibes, which I'm sure Ralph is going to mention in today's interview. The ending is quite a cliffhanger, but Ralph claims the story isn't over. And as much as I want a continuation, I really want to know more about this universe, the ether, and how the origin came to be. I would love to see Lucas become this powerful bounty hunter and see how he gets so good. To learn a little bit more about Lucas, you can always go to our Second Life universe where one of our skins is him, as he is one of our most popular alternate characters. You'll really, really enjoy Unbound, and if you want to get it right now, it's $19.99 in the web store. To make sure that you never miss another graphic novel, make sure that you subscribe to our graphic novel subscription, which will earn you a Zen buck for every time you get a graphic novel. And who knows, maybe one day we'll see each other in the ether. This month, we're highlighting an incredible new graphic novel from New York Times bestselling author and 15-time Grammy Award-winning artist, Alicia Keys about a young girl who finds her inner strength and some pretty awesome superpowers to change the world for the better. Girl on Fire from HarperCollins Books, one of Zenoscope's new partners, was co-authored by film producer and longtime writer Andrew Weiner. Andrew stopped by recently to give us all the details about this incredible story, working with Alicia Keys and the evolution of Lolo's journey, Girl on Fire. First of all, I want to welcome Andrew Weiner to Everything Zen. Andrew, we're so glad to have you with us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the thick of it with Girl on Fire, I wanted to ask you about your background as a writer, specifically where you're from and how you got started writing creatively. Well, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I started out in the film business, um, my parents make documentaries. They made uh, environmental documentaries. And so at a young age, we went uh, all over the world. Um, my mm -hmm. sister and myself, we kind of got dragged around with the luggage. Um, so I'm Is that fun for you? It was amazing. I was, at eight, I was in India. 
Uh, at, five, at five, I was in El Salvador. Most of the time I was in Washington, D.C. So anyway, so uh, after school, I went straight into the film business and produced movies for several years and also wrote screenplays and then pivoted to, I mean, I still, I still, I'm producing a film right now, but I really fell in love with graphic novels, which brings me to you. Were you, were you always into comics and superheroes as a kid? Yeah, I think, I think most kids were at least, you know, back in the day, like growing up in the 80s, um, reading comic books. I, I mean, I loved Marvel and DC Comics. And then I rediscovered them probably when I was like, in my early 20s, there were a few books I read that just kind of like um, transformed the way I think about the medium as something that can also that is also meant for adults. Because I think for a long time, you, you think about comics, at least for me, that's something you enjoy as a kid um, and then move on. And then I read um, Stray Bullets and Ghost World. And I thought Ghost World was just like, it was just amazing. Girl on Fire is an incredible graphic novel uh, that you co-wrote with 15-time Grammy-winning singer-songwriter-producer Alicia Keys. Um, In fact... You can't even really mention the book without her song getting stuck in your head. So for me, the, like the thought of working with someone who is so inspiring with an insane catalog of great songs is just mind-blowing. How did the two of you connect and start conceptualizing this story? Okay, uh, yeah, good question. I think, by the way, you could just say that two of us combined have 15 uh, Grammy Awards. I will go back into the edit room and clean that part. Her with, her with, her with 15 and counting, and I'm still sitting on zero, and, and, I'll, and I'll stay there. Um, we were introduced. I met her then film producing partner, Susan Lewis, at a party, and we just hit it off. And I, I think maybe she'd seen some of the work I'd done, and she, I told her what I was doing, the idea of like starting this business up, and she thought that, Alicia and I would make a good book together. That's the short version. And I spent time with um, Susan and Alicia just sort of like, I guess, getting to know each other a little bit and talking about things we cared about um, creatively and uh, personally. And I think when things clicked, um, I really wanted to work with Alicia because like that, like, you know, she's just, she's extraordinary. I love the music. I didn't know her prior. Um, and I think when things clicked is when she said, first and foremost, it has to be entertaining. Um, because I think at that point I was just thinking like, um, because what, like, what does Alicia, what's important to her? Um, what will resonate with her? And then when she was like, and, and the answer is a lot of things, but when she said it just has to be fun and entertaining first and foremost, like that sort of speaks my language. Like if you don't have that, it really just doesn't matter. And so like she cares, she cares deeply about representation. Um, she's like a champ. I mean, she's obviously a champion of, um, of women and girls, but if the story is not a fantastic story, that doesn't matter. So those, so anything that resonates with her personally it's just, it's just organic to the storytelling. Um, and, but it isn't like, let's push this into here. At no point was she like, let's make sure this, you know, resonates with, with, with women. Because it just will if she's telling the story. Um, and I think, it, I think it does. For those hearing about this graphic novel for the first time, this is your elevator pitch. What is Girl on Fire about and why should listeners pick up a copy? Alicia would be so good in this situation. I've heard her talk about this book and she's just amazing. Um, And your listeners are stuck with me. Uh, The main character, her name is Lolo Wright. She's uh, on the cusp of 15 years old. She goes, she's from Brooklyn, Brooklyn Housing Projects. And um, she's a smart, normal kid. She's kind of flying below the radar. She's a little quiet. Uh, She's got an older brother, James, who is stuck in the same school and the same grade as her. They're pretty close in 
age. And there is an inciting incident. Uh, James is mistaken for a, uh, a robber and uh, he winds up in a really dangerous situation with the police. And Lolo in this moment out of anger, desperation, uh, I mean, this is, this is her origin story. She has these powers inside of her that she didn't know she had and they explode. And that's, and that's our starting off point for this story. And that's a good segue into my next question because that pivotal moment where Lolo's powers come to fruition, George Floyd instantly comes to mind. And I was curious, was that experience the lightning bolt that kickstarted the idea for the entire story or was it more the idea was about this young girl finding her voice and connecting with Alicia's song more of the launching path? The, the song was, is, I think the song's sort of the North Star of the, of the book. Um, it's not a, you know, it's, not, it's obviously, it's not a, a straight adaptation, adaptation. It's the song is like, just three minutes of like just perfection. Um, but it's not like a, a linear story that we've, you know, translated to. But it's still, it's sort of like the, I think, and I've never talked to Alicia about like specifically what does this song mean to you? And I think for her, and maybe I'm, you know, I'm making assumptions, but um, I think for her, it's what the song means to you, the listener. Um, so it means something for different for me than it means for you, but it's just such a powerful song. And I think that the song is full of like, it's full of yearning. Um, there's a little bit of sadness to it, but it's also got a hell of a lot of hope and it's aspirational. I mean, that's like also like uh, uh, Brittany Williams, the, our illustrator, who's just incredible. Like that's her, her, like before this, like that was her like jam, you know, that's like the, like, you know, get up and go. And like one of mine too. Um, so, but the issues like with uh, George Floyd, uh it certainly like there's a nod to that. There's a there is a nod to that in the beginning. Absolutely. Do Do you have a favorite moment from the story? I, I have a I have a I have a few I have a few moments that that resonate. There's a character Runt, who is uh, besides Lolo, who's the hero. He's probably he's probably my favorite character. He's uh, he's he's a shorty. And um, he's been, he's got a really, just a really, uh, he's had a very tough life. And I'm trying to articulate this without giving too much away and, and without starting to cry because I love the character and he mm. goes through such a tough time. Um, and he's really pulled in a really dark direction and Lolo um, latches onto this kid and just won't let go. And uh, Runt basically is like, I don't know you. Uh, I don't know who you are. And Lolo says, that's not true. Um, and she reminds him that they played together when they were little kids, like kindergarten. And he kind of blows it off. And then later on, he tells her that it was, it's his favorite memories of his whole life. Um, and it's also connected to his brother that died. So it's painful. Um, but he's able to sort of um, getting a little choked up. He's able to express it. And I think by doing that, it's sort of like, it kind of centers his um, moral compass a little bit and yeah. um, sort of kind of writes the ship. Hopefully, you know, it, it's, it's still, there's, there's still more to be told. I'm glad you said there's still more to be told because without spoiling the ending, I have to say that, the characters are so interesting and there are enough loose ends that, you know, warrant a sequel or an entire series of graphic novels featuring Lolo and her family and friends. Are there any plans or discussions to do more? Alicia FaceTimed me last week and which uh, she just took a few moments because the book had just come out and she wanted to say, Hey, and, and celebrate for a, for a second. And I said, uh, you know, Alicia, we should talk about ideas for, 
for book two. And she said, good, because I want to do another one and another one and another one and another one. So that's well, that's what I'll leave you with in terms of any future plans. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and co-authoring Girl on Fire. Also, congratulations on sharing those 15 Grammys. Yes, <laughs> it's a lot of work. Uh, no, thank you very much. Uh, I don't know, I'm just, just really, really blessed to have been a part of this book and to have been able to work with Alicia, with Britt, and everyone else on this team. Um, and I'm happy for my contributions, but I'm really proud of the work that everybody did. And I hope people will give this book a shot. Thanks again to Andrew and Harper Collins. Girl on Fire is available on newsstands, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, and AliciaKeysOfficial.com right now. Moving forward, let's take a look at some of the exciting events coming up on the Zenoscope calendar for March 2022. New releases occur every Wednesday, and we've got a bottom-heavy release schedule this month, starting on the 23rd with the conclusion of Rise of the Djinn's three-part miniseries, a Van Helsing annual that has Liesl taking on a coven of witches, Sky's latest adventure tag-teaming with the Queen of Hearts in Grim Fairy Tales Volume 2, number 58, Legendary Beastmaster Belle DeMarco finds herself in the middle of a War of the Giants, and speaking of giants, Jack the Giant Killer makes an appearance in a new Myths and Legends quarterly that taps into the legend of Jack and Jill. The new metal comic, metal cards, and sticker set have all been released for March and are available for subscription on Zenoscope.com. And continuing the 2022 Collectors Club, there are new holiday cosplay and catch em editions throughout the month. This month's holiday collectible arrives on St. Patrick's Day with artwork by Mike Chrome. And speaking of Mike Chrome, aka Mr. Australia, he's our March featured artist of the month. And you'll find all kinds of new art prints, stickers, and metal cards in Mike Crumb's collection on Xenoscope.com. Earlier this month, we released a one-of-a-kind subscription. It's Joe's Secret Stash, curated by our very own co-founder, Joe Brusha. The subscription includes limited showcase editions, limited edition 150s hand-picked by Joe out of the Xenoscope vault, autographed comic or graphic novel, and additional goodies, all for just $69.99 domestic, $79.99 international. I mean, the showcase alone is worth more than the bi-monthly subscription cost. Supplies are limited, so make sure to sign up for the secret stash today. And lastly, just a quick reminder that we'll be in Las Vegas next month, the weekend of April 22nd and 23rd. There are still a few spots remaining, so whether you're a current VIP or would like to become one, you can purchase a ticket online and join our artists, writers, staff, and special guests for an unforgettable event at the Mirage Hotel and Casino. In addition to Zenoscope staff, artists Nii Rafino, Sun Kumanaki, Eric Basildua, Keith Garvey, and more will be in attendance to sign your collectibles. And we just received word that CGC will be on hand for grading opportunities. That's April 22nd and 23rd in Las Vegas. Visit Zenoscope.com and look for VIP and VIP events under the main menu. Or you can always reach out to Noah at VIP at Zenoscope.com. That's our podcast word of the month, Ring-a-ding-ding. And for March, we're going with the name of the virtual world in Unbound. If you remember, it's called the Ether. So the March podcast word of the month is Ether. E-T-H-E-R. Hailing all the way from Brisbane, Australia, our featured music guest, Harriet Pilbeam, is known musically as Hatchie and has been described as a cosmic concoction of dream pop and shoegaze. Her debut single, Try, in May 2017, received critical success in her native Australia with more singles and a five-song EP, Sugar and Spice, that followed. For those of us here in the U.S., Hatchie really started to make a name for herself 
with the release of her debut album, Keepsake, in 2019, and three incredible singles, Without a Blush, Stay With Me, and my personal favorite, Obsessed. Next month, she releases the widely anticipated follow-up to Keepsake, carefully crafted before and during the pandemic, called Giving the World Away, which is bigger and bolder than anything she's put out to date. And she's following it up with a U.S. tour starting this May. Once we got our time zones in sync, I had the pleasure of visiting with Harriet to discuss her music influences, road tripping through the U.S., married life, and the story behind giving the world away. Here's what she had to say. We are truly globetrotting on this edition of Everything Zen as we reach out all the way to Australia and our featured music guest, Harriet Pilbeam, a.k.a. Hatchie. Welcome to Everything Zen. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Let's first talk about your music journey. Did you have a music gene from your parents and did you always aspire to be a musician? Um, I honestly think, yeah, my parents met working in radio and they're both really big music lovers. Um, They were both musical when they were younger as well. My mom can sing, um, but they didn't pursue that side of it themselves. Um, But they definitely encouraged me and my three siblings to all pursue it. And we all played instruments throughout school. We were all in choirs and everything like that. And um, I, yeah, really latched onto singing from an early age. So it was definitely something I always wanted to do, but I didn't really, um, I guess, believe that it could be a potential career for me until much later in life and didn't, you know, I, I was in bands and they felt like I was in friends' bands as more of a hobby as like a teenager Right. Up until like 24 when I decided I wanted to take it really, really seriously, which is when I started working on this project. And um, yeah, I released the first Hatchy single. I think it was on my, I think it was my 24th or 25th birthday. But yeah, until then, I just, I guess I, I didn't, I didn't know that really I was capable of, of pursuing it seriously until then. So I'm glad I gave it a, a good go. <laughs> we are too. Um, <laughs> Everyone has influences, and having worked with, you know, Robin Guthrie previously, there's a Cocteau Twins influence in there. At times, I feel like I can hear the Sundays or Kate Bush or maybe hints of the Cranberries. Who would you consider your top three most influential artists and why? Oh, um, I mean, you're correct. I would say all of those artists you listed have definitely been influences at some stage in my um, you know, writing trajectory. I think even though I'm not as directly influenced by Cocteau Twins these days and that I don't listen to them as much as I was listening to them a few years ago, I would say that they will still still, still remain a really major one for me, I think, um, particularly because of the, the vocal melodies and harmonies that Elizabeth sang, I think will always be like etched in my head and, and a really big influence. Um, hmm. I mean, I love New Order. New Order is probably my favorite band ever. If I had to pick one, I don't like picking one, but if I had to, I often say them. Um, I think that's maybe a less obvious one, but I think I definitely have always wanted to recreate that euphoria that they seem to be really good at creating in their music. So that's a big one for me. Another one is probably, probably Kylie Minogue. I think that, if you, if you don't know me or you haven't read interviews with me, that might come as a surprise, but I've been a huge fan of her since I was a kid. And um, I think the pop side of my music is definitely influenced by her and the fact that she's such a chameleon and that she's tried so many different sounds and some of them I don't connect with and some of them I really do. She had, you know, that really alternative, quote unquote, alternative for Kylie phase in the 90s yeah. um, when she was, she did those two records, which was like her self-titled album and the, Impossible Princess album, which was diff- with a different label. And those are two of my favorite records of hers. So, mm. yeah, I think she'd have to be up there for me as well. That's good company. <laughs> There's a lot of comfort in being in a band of like-minded individuals. You, you sort of referred to this earlier, sharing the stage with a group of friends. And after the Go Violets went their separate ways in 2014, was mm-hmm. it difficult for you to go out on your own as a solo artist? 
Um, it was weird. So I'd been in this other band, Baba Ganoush, for longer than that. Um, Garbalets was only, yeah, two or three years for me. Um, and it definitely had its pros and cons going out alone. I think um, it can be really nice not – I think things happen a lot quicker because you have less people to run everything by. You know, we always made decisions together in those bands. And when you don't have three other people to – text or email or call to make every decision you can things run a bit smoother um i think yeah it was really nice having like a really clear vision that i could follow um but it, there were definitely elements that were hard like at first i struggled doing interviews my, by myself i'd get really really anxious and nervous before them and now they're fine um and doing videos and things anything that was about me i guess like physically um rather than just me recording um was scary um but i'm really lucky in that throughout this whole project i've I've collaborated with um my husband joe who's kind of like the other half of hatchy really and he he helped me with all my demos um starting off and then has continued to um, be a part of the project um up until this day he does all of my videos and all of my artwork and um yeah we write and record together too so i'm lucky that it's not entirely alone and that i do travel with the same band members everywhere so it does kind of i get the best of both worlds really that's great yeah you you talked about hatchy you know being a family nickname how did it come about um it's simple just that my name's harriet and then i got hattie a lot and then it kind Um, of just turned to hatchy i don't know how (laughs) when i was really little um and it definitely wasn't my plan for it to become the name of the project but when Joe found out that's what my family called me. He started calling me that as a joke, kind of teasing me. And then when we were recording the demo for Try and couldn't think of a name to call it, he just called it, he called it Hatchy Demo dot MP3. So, and then I just stuck. Anytime I sent the demo to anyone, they were like, oh, Hatchy, that's a great name. So here I am. <laughs> Five the years rest later. Is yeah. history. <laughs> exactly. On a personal note, I, I want to ask you about Obsessed, uh, mm-hmm. because I'm obsessed with the song. It's on oh. my spring-summer playlist every year. The Thanks. song and the video really resonated with me during the pandemic at a time when things were being shut down. You really couldn't go anywhere. And it has this wonderful sort of carefree road trip vibe going on that makes mm-hmm. you yearn for those silly times and experiences with friends and family. What do you remember most about shooting the video for Obsessed? And do you have a favorite road trip story or experience? Well, I don't know. Well, it was, it was a lot of, we took all of that footage from a few tours, mostly across the U.S., um, as you can tell from the food and beverages consumed. Um, I could see that. Yes. Uh, it's pretty easy to pick that one. Um, there were some bits and pieces from other tours as well when we needed to fill in some gaps. My favourite tour story, I don't know. I mean, I think just, I always say this, but I think my favourite part of being on the road is all the different landscapes, particularly in the US that you pass by. I think we always do the most driving on that continent and, um, you know, even going from the top of one coast to the bottom can look completely different or going a little bit inland can look completely different when you're driving through places like even, you know, Colorado and things like that, like they just look beautiful. And in Australia, I think by comparison with Australia, when you're touring, you really just go around the coast as well, but it's even less Mm. um, of a distance to cover. And it all looks pretty similar unless you go really far inland to like the outback. So um, it was really interesting that you could, you know, wake up one morning in, I think we were in Montana and it was snowing and it was just like really white and blue colouring out the window and then you'd fall asleep for a few hours and you'd wake up and everything would be brown or green, just completely different colours. So I think that's like overall one of my favourite memories. But yeah. That's, cool. that's really good. You, you, yeah. you talked about food. So I have to <laughs> yeah. ask you, what is your must have or go to food or snack on the road? Oh, I don't know. Um, 
Look, these days I try to be a lot healthier when I'm on the road because it was definitely detrimental to my health, with the kind of food that we were eating for a while. Um, I think we just love trying all the different potato chip flavors. That's probably like the, the, the most straightforward answer I can give you off the top of my head. We love those voodoo chips that come from New Orleans. Um, yeah. I don't think they're not available all over the country. It doesn't seem, but when you can get them, they're so good. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I've been like vegan for like five years. So the, the big one for me used to just be hunting down the impossible burger patty because you couldn't get that in Australia. You can get it a lot now. Yeah, I know. It's everywhere now. Yeah. Um, but that when we were on the road, you know, three years ago, that was a big one. Of course, we're here to talk about the new album, Giving uh-huh. the World Away, which releases on April 22nd. It's big, it's bold and vibrant, and also more self-confident and reflective. Can you share a little bit about how you arrived at this album and how it kind of represents a departure from Sugar and Spice and Keepsake? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to dig a lot deeper um, on every aspect of this album. I think when I listen back to Sugar and Spice and Keepsake, I'm still really fond of them and proud of them, but I, I felt like I was um, really easily satisfied with my writing on those, which is fine and that's, that's a good thing to be. Um, but I just wanted to push myself a lot further and hold myself to a higher standard um, and not just release the same thing over and over again. Um, so I took a lot more time with the lyrics this time around um, and I tried to dig a lot deeper and kind of push myself to question my lyrics and improve them as I went. We were lucky. I mean, I don't want to say lucky. I think the, the fact that we were stuck at home in lockdown while recording this really helped that. Um, it, it meant that I did have a lot more time to work on it and we weren't like, you know, at a studio with these strict time limits to get everything done. So we really recorded it over like six months or so. I think, yeah, I think just having so much time to reflect meant that I could delve a lot deeper with this one. And, yeah, I wanted it to be more suited to a live show, which I think is why it's so bold and and vibrant, like you mentioned, um, and so confident-sounding because I've come into some confidence myself over the last few years of being an artist and just growing into my late 20s rather than my early 20s, which is how, where I was when I was writing that first EP. Um, So I think part of it just comes with my own personal growth, but also me um, pushing myself more. Another fascinating thing that I had read about the album was that when you originally went into it, it was going to be this epic dance party album. But then like everything, it seems like the pandemic changed a lot of things for a lot of folks and how we live our lives and create and travel and those things. And so it sounded like to me, it became less about the dance party, but also because of this time alone, more introspective. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think I, yeah, I, I, I think this enchanted is kind of an indicator of more of the direction I hoped to take it in. Um, and I could have still done that. Like it was definitely a decision of mine to not do that. It wasn't like, oh, damn, now we can't do this. Um, I just was like, you know what, maybe I don't need to make that kind of record right now. Maybe I need to still cover some ground that I haven't covered yet. And um, I think I was going through a lot of growth and changes over the last two years. And it was really important to me to really capture that in the album. And it helped me get a lot of closure with a lot of personal things by putting them into songs rather than kind of going for the more fun, dancey route. Um, And that's not to say that there aren't fun dancey songs on this album i think it's a yeah. really nice blend of thank you you know that sort of you know just dance all night kind of vibe as well yeah. as you know, more <laughs> of the you know more of the personal pieces yeah totally and i also think that it's not impossible to write a fun dancey song that still covers really you know serious stuff True. um those two things can exist together but for me yeah i just yeah, I felt like I needed to get a few more things out before I could move on to that. So who knows, maybe with the next one, um, it'll be a little more relaxed and fun. <laughs> we'll you're going you're gonna to join Kylie and do the locomotion. That's uh, yeah, exactly right. If I had everything I wanted, but I want more, but I 
Quicksand, the Olivia Rodrigo collaboration come about? And what was that experience like for you? Well, that one was a song that I started writing in 2019 in between tours. Um, and it had different lyrics. And um, I had like all of the parts. Um, and Joe helped me at home kind of give it more of a, a, a good structure and a really solid base. Um, and he helped me work on better lyrics that got it to the, the quicksand um, lyric um, that you hear on it, the final track. And then when we were heading over to America to do a writing trip in February, 2020, um, Dan Nigro, who worked, works with Olivia Rodrigo was at the top of my list of um, dream collaborators collaborators because he'd worked with a lot of really cool alternative pop artists. That I like, um, and he also had that background of being in a band himself. So I really liked that because I felt like a lot of the time you hear about writers or you do sessions with writers who have never actually really been on the artist side of it themselves, or maybe they've just been in the pop side. And I liked that he'd kind of been this like alternative side of it and he'd toured as an artist himself. So I felt like we had a lot in common. Um, and so we thought Quicksand would be the perfect song to work on with him. And we took it to him and yeah, he really like solidified it and turned it into the kind of like pop pop song it is now, which is great because I think it really needed that kind of nudge in that direction while still maintaining kind of the alternative sounds soundscape that it still kind of sits in, um, which the, you know, additional production and mixing from George Elbrecht really like solidified as well. So it was truly a team effort, that one. What do you like or dislike about writing with a partner versus writing by yourself? I like that things can come together a lot quicker. I think I, you can really fill in each other's gaps of your knowledge and your abilities. So I think my strengths are melodies and harmonies and, um, you know, chord, you know, chord structures and things, but not necessarily production and not definitely not mixing. Um, so that's why I love writing with Joe so much because we can do it at home in our own time. Um, and he's much better at, you know, engineering the recording and actually physically getting it done, um, knowing how to achieve certain sounds. If I can hear something in my head, he can really help me get to that point. Mm. Um, and so we really balance each other out with our abilities. Um, and that same thing happens with other writers as well, but particularly with Joe and I, because we live together and we've known each other for almost a decade now. Um, mm. I, I guess if I had to think of a con is that sometimes if you're writing with someone that you haven't met many times or at all, sometimes it can be hard to translate what each other, what each other person wants or what they're trying to say about a sound or something. Um, Cause you might not have the same musical background as them. So um, I think at times a song can kind of start going in this direction that you didn't imagine it going in. Sometimes that, that's great because you get something incredible out of the experience that you never could have gotten by yourself. But sometimes it can feel a bit like it's out of your control yeah. and it's really hard to wind it back. Um, but I think the fact that this is ultimately my project means that I always have the final say, luckily. Um, final yeah. cut. Yeah. <laughs> I should hope so. It. Yeah. <laughs> Recently, you popped up on a few songs by Swim Deep. Uh, World's Unluckiest Guy is a fun, breezy summer smash. And, mm -hmm. and your voices are perfectly intertwined on this. But they're on a different record label. They're from the UK. How did that all materialize? I know. It probably seems very random to people who don't know me. Um, well, Joe and I have both been really big fans of them for years, particularly Joe. He introduced me to their music when we started dating um and i think we just became kind of internet friends um through hatchie i think swim deep heard of hatchie and then austin came to a hatchie show when we played the shacklewell arms a few years ago and we kind of kept up the online relationship and during lockdown in 2020 he sent a few songs that he um thought i might be interested in singing on and 
I yeah helped him write my part for um, World's Unluckiest Guy, and then I just did a bunch of um, vocals on Darklands. So yeah, it was a very long stretched out lead up to it but we just became friends online because we're fans of one another really you talked about joe uh the ultimate partnership uh of Mm -hmm. course coming last november when when the two of you tied the knot and you still have that newlywed glow about you Do, do you feel any different and has it changed anything related to your music you guys have been together for a long time so yeah yeah, I think for that reason, I, I don't feel that different. I mean, it, it's it's really lovely. We were together for, I think we got, we got married on our eight-year anniversary. So um, there's not much that could have changed, I guess, in the last, like, six months since then. I don't know. I think I just feel so relaxed and content. I don't think that um, I had any worries before, but if I didn't have any in the back of my mind, they've slipped away now you know, any worries about my future, I guess. I mean, you know, about, you know, I think it's just nice to know that you're in it with someone else. So no matter what happens, you can face everything together is really what I mean about any worries. We just know each other so well. And like I said, yeah, we make a really good team creatively. So it's great. Awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. The giving uh, the world away tour kicks off here in the U S in May. What are you most excited about with the tour this year? And are there specific songs that you're really looking forward to performing live? Mm, I'm, I'm really excited to see Caroline Loveglow. She's supporting us at all the shows. And I did see her play once when we were in LA a few months ago. Um, but I'm, I'm really, I feel blessed to be able to watch that every night. Um, we're a really big fan of hers. Um, so that's definitely a big one for me. Um, I don't know. I mean, we've been playing a few new songs here. We've been playing Lights On and The Rhythm already. Those are two of the album tracks that we've introduced to the set that aren't released yet. Um, I'm, I'm excited to play Giving the World Away, the song, because we actually haven't played that one live yet, but we'll be, we will be adding it to the set for the album tour. So I'm keen to see how that one comes across, because it's definitely a bit more left field for me. So it'll be interesting to see how people kind of react to that one. After the tour wraps, what's next for you? Will you take some time off? Will you go back to the studio? Will you continue to play live shows on the road? Um, it'll be a little bit of everything. We're going to get right back into the swing of things. We have a lot of other tour dates penciled in for the rest of the year that haven't been completely confirmed or announced yet. So hopefully by then we'll know. Um, it's a little bit um, on the edge of being confirmed right now. So um, hopefully we've got a bunch more touring because I really just want to go, go, go now that we're getting back on the road and not stop because I've missed it so much. And you really can, um, just have such a great connection with your audience through touring. And it was such a big part of Hatchy before the pandemic. So it's really important to me that we get back to that. Um, I've, you know, started a little bit of writing here and there and mm-hmm. got some plans to write with a few people. But um, nothing set in stone in terms of recording the next release or anything. So, um, yeah, we're going to take that part slow, but mainly just heaps of shows. Harriet, thank you so much for joining us, and congrats on the new album and the tour. I mean, we're so excited to have live music back and have you back in the U.S. again. So, thank Thank you. you. I can't wait, and thanks so much. I really appreciate the the well-thought-out questions. It's nice. Giving the World Away by Hatchie releases in full on April 22nd. But you can download three singles from the album today, This Enchanted, Quicksand, and Giving the World Away. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, and all your favorite music sources. And don't forget to check out Hatchie's debut release, Keepsake, and original EP, Sugar and Spice. For all the latest news, tour dates, and a city near you, photos and videos, be sure to visit Hatchy.net. Before we wrap this edition of Everything Zen, let's check back in with Amber to see what fun facts she has in store for us for March 2022. Hiya friends, fun facts guru Amber here. Can you believe it's almost been an entire year of fun facts? Which has been your favorite? Let me know. We've covered Mothra, Belle, Van Helsing, just to name a few. 
but today we'll be highlighting another badass female that adds a lot to this group and brings honor to them as she celebrates her 30th anniversary this year, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Of course, you know there are two Buffys, Christy Swanson, who was the OG from the 1992 film, and Sarah Michelle Gellar, who reprised the role for seven seasons on the WB and UPN. Buffy is known as the Chosen One. Whenever a Slayer dies, a new one immediately inherits her powers. She is best described as a leader and uses the Scooby Gang to help solve weird happenings in Sunnydale, California. She alone will face the vampires, the demons, and the forces of darkness. In both versions, she's in high school trying to protect her classmates from the troubles that the Hellmouth presents. The TV show dives a little deeper and the demons represent everyday challenges that teens face, including anxiety, depression, family drama, breakups, friendships, trauma, and even death. Her love interest, Angel, had his own spinoff, which ran five seasons and brought in other well-known characters such as Cordelia and Buffy's other love interest, Spike. A few fun facts about the show. Season four featured the episode Hush, which was nominated for an Emmy. It also includes famous creature actor Doug Jones. There are technically 145 episodes instead of the listed 144 because there is an unaired pilot with different casting choices. Buffy dies twice throughout the show, which brings in a new slayer named Kendra in the second season, who then also dies and brings in the anti-hero slayer, Faith, in the third season. At the time of its release, Buffy had some of the highest TV ratings on the WB, which was a relatively unknown network before the show. Next year will be the 20th anniversary of the finale of the TV show, and while there have been rumors of a revival, at least we'll always have Erg, Arg, to remember her by. And that'll do it for this edition of Everything Zen. A very special thanks to Amber, Noah, Ralph, author Andrew Wiener from the HarperCollins graphic novel, Girl on Fire, and our featured music guest, Hatchie. I'm your host, Mark Sells. Thank you for listening. Robin Williams once shared, spring is nature's way of saying, let's party. So party on, my fellow Xenoscopers, and enjoy a spectacular spring. We'll see you all again next month, right here on Everything Zen.